Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Schnapp, a.k.a. the Serene Home Nursing Agency podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Condon. Schnapp is here to explore the inner workings of the American healthcare system. We want to educate and inspire our listeners by diving into the minds of healthcare professionals and people with extraordinary stories. I am not the be-all and end-all for all patients, and I understand that. So if people are not comfortable with me, they should not come back. They should find another therapist, someone who's going to create that bond for them because it is their time, it is their effort, and more importantly, it's their growth. Today, we have a very special guest yet again. His name is Ted Hernich. He is a licensed clinical social worker. Ted has almost 33 years of experience in his field and is going to give us a lot of good insight on the current state of mental health in today's world. Good morning, everybody, or good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening to this. Today, we have a very special guest. I feel like I say that all the time, very special guest. All, all my guests are special to me, but today we have a very special guest yet again. His name is Ted Hernich. So Ted is a, what I like to say, and what most people would call him, is a therapist. But can you go into the details of exactly what kind of therapy you do or what type of license you have? Sure. Currently, I am a licensed clinical social worker in the state of New York. Currently, New York recognizes two different types of social work credentials. One is an LCSW, which is what I am, and that stands for licensed clinical social worker. And the other one is known as an LMSW. That stands for a licensed master social worker. The biggest difference is, is that someone who is a licensed clinical social worker has to have a requisite of three plus years postgraduate experience in order to take that level of exam and to get that credential. Uh, additionally, as an LCSW, I am now qualified in the state of New York to conduct what would you and I would refer to as private office therapy or sessions in an office. Um, and I have been doing that since 1997. Okay. So uh, I know you and I spoke briefly about this, but can you explain for the people listening, for those who might not know, what the difference between a licensed clinical social worker is as compared to either like a psychiatrist or a psychologist, what the difference is? Sure. If you go from the top of the pyramid down, so to speak, the top of the pyramid is probably a board-certified psychiatrist, which is basically someone who has successfully completed medical school, has taken and passed a psychiatric board certification exam, and has had at least four, potentially five years post-med school experience as a psychiatrist. They have the ability to prescribe medications. They have the ability to create psychiatric assessments that could lead to psychiatric hospitalization if so needed. Coming down a level, you would now have a psychologist. And a psychologist is somebody who has a doctorate degree in psychology, a PhD, and they have taken and passed a board-certified exam in New York State or any other state. That usually requires a total of at least five to six years of graduate education, both master's, PhD level. And again, when you're a PhD, usually falls into one of two categories. One would be a research arm and the other one would be a direct practice arm. So when people talk about psychologists doing office practice, they're referring people who are doing the direct practice arm. And then last, but I don't think least, are licensed clinical <laughs> social workers. So um, we, we have the ability to do in office practice and office therapy. We do not prescribe medications. We practice a variety of therapeutic interventions. Some of my colleagues are people who are very closely aligned with schools of um, psychotherapeutic interventions via Freudian, Jungian, all that stuff. 
Others are more in the scientific arm, which talks about behavior modification therapy, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder interventions. So it, it runs a very wide gamut. Okay, interesting. So going over that, you've described to us different types of therapy, essentially, psychiatrist, psychologist, and then licensed clinical social worker. So what made you want to pursue a career in therapy or being a licensed uh, social worker? It was pure chance, pure luck. Uh, graduated from undergraduate school with a degree in journalism. My intention was to become a sports newspaper reporter. This was back in the day when the internet did not really exist and realized as soon as undergraduate school was over that the days of print journalism were starting to change. And it wasn't because of the internet. It was actually because of television. Television started to become a much bigger part of how people received their media. Um, had difficulty breaking into the print journalism field and needed a job. At that time, my father, who at that time was a New York City firefighter, suggested that I take a civil service exam to try to get a job in order to ensure some type of income. I took a bunch of civil service exams, and the first one I was called for was to be what was known as a caseworker, working with homeless people in a New York City shelter system. And that was in 1983. And in 1983, New York City was a very different place than it is today. 1983 was the beginning of the crack epidemic. 1983 was just the scratching on the door of HIV and AIDS epidemic. There was rampant, rampant homelessness in New York to the point that they no longer had the ability to provide services. So the city expanded services within a span of two years. They went from like 1,500 beds for homeless people to literally six, 7,000. And I got hired. Jeez. So they had their hands full and oh, you, it you was, walked into that. It was like the Wild West, absolutely. Yeah. So do you think that dealing with different homeless people and in such a excessive amount of them, do you think that working with people like that maybe pushed you towards doing that uh, more like therapeutic? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the fact is I came from a kind of a traditional blue-collar middle-class background in New York. Uh, I really was like the first member of my family to go to college. And people in my peer group did not go to therapy. People in my peer group did not openly talk about problems. It didn't mean there were no problems. I had plenty of friends who had problems with alcohol, friends with, who had problems with drugs, friends who lived in homes that had domestic violence, but it wasn't talked about. And when I started working with homeless people, I saw that the problems could run much deeper and much wider than anything I experienced at home. Yeah. And that was years. You said that was in the eighties when you started realizing 1983. Right? Correct. Yeah. So it's wild that even now, and I'm a significant amount younger than you. How, how old did you say you were? 61. 61. Okay. So I'm 24. And I still see a lot of these same issues that you're speaking about now. A lot of people are going through things and don't speak about them. And we'll get into a little bit later about the negative um, stigma, so to say, of going to therapy. And like I said, we'll touch on that a little bit later. But before we get into that, I want to Talk about today's youth, and then we'll get into adults. I want to know what you think is the most common mental illness, so to say, for the youth or the youthful generation. If we were to break it down into two separate categories, the first one would probably be, I think there is a large amount of anxiety. And when we talk about youth, we talk about adolescence, which, again, clinically means people under the age of 18. 
Anxiety is a huge problem. Uh, children and youth of today, and you're a lot closer to that category than I am, my time was a much easier time. There was no social media. Mm-hmm. It was a telephone and it was the U.S. Postal Service and that was kind of it. There wasn't uh, – uh, you're, you're, you're a person who grew up in a time where the ability to communicate with people was literally at your fingertips and therefore impulsivity becomes problematic because there's no delay from the thought to the word where in my day, if you wanted to talk to somebody, it would require you going to a telephone, dialing a number and it might not seem much but that small break in time is enough to often reset what we say and how we say it. Yeah. Especially if you're upset about something. We actually spoke about it before that a good thing to do was when you're upset and you want to say something to someone that might not be the nicest thing to say, just literally think about it for a little bit. A- absolutely. And, and that, with uh, that social media and technology, that, that's, that's gone now. Social media creates immediacy. And as a result, whether people would ever be comfortable admitting it or not, we are a society of immediate gratification and social media fits that to a T. Yeah. And I definitely see that a lot in our generation. And we've spoke about before how I like to say that I'm an old soul. And I think a lot of people around me would agree to that. And I'm not going to pretend like I don't use social media because now it is a part of our life that we really can't get away from it, especially my age. If I want to hang out with friends, communicate with friends, whatnot, Mm -hmm. I have to do it through social media. So... The reason I say I'm an old soul is because I usually take social media with a grain of salt. And I think that everyone else should as well. But you don't really see that in the youthful generation. I think that people, especially kids around my age and teenagers who are really like born into that social media, that Instagram and TikTok era, they create this like false persona of themselves, so to say. So they do certain things and wear certain things on social media that they wouldn't actually truthfully do in real life. So basically to get satisfaction from others. And I think that's probably a high driver of anxiety in kids because they're trying to meet this standard that social media sets that's unrealistic usually. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. The the one of, one of my caveats in therapy to a lot of my patients is unrealistic expectations often cause frustration. And when we put an unrealistic expectation on ourselves, that sometimes can very easily turn into a self-criticism. So as a result, you have an entire generation of kids, as you said, who create personas that are out there for social media, but that might not be reflective of how they feel when they're by themselves without an audience in front of a mirror, just looking at who they are. And, and that dichotomy between who they are on a social media platform versus what they are and who they are in quote-unquote real life, that is anxiety-producing. Do you see that a lot of your patients portray that fake persona to you? They don't tell you the actual essence of the situation. They tell you basically an altered perception of it because of social media. Therapy often requires people to feel at some point that they seek therapy when they're in crisis. And from a therapist's perspective, you meet the patient where the patient is at. So if the patient comes in on crisis, be it a relationship issue, be it a work issue, be it a health issue, regardless, you meet them at that point and you work with them on that specific issue. However, real growth and real development actually occurs when the crisis is addressed and the crisis goes away because then the person is going to be more comfortable being who they truly are. Because in the moment when you're dealing with crisis – People have heightened senses of vulnerability. I'm a complete stranger to them. They walk into my office. They don't know me. 
it would be a rare occurrence for somebody to be completely vulnerable to a stranger at that moment. So it does take a while to build that level of, of clinical trust with a patient. Yeah. I think that that goes for any relationship, even friends, family, like you need to get close to someone before you're able to fully open up. So I do understand that. But um, I'm thinking like once you tell yourself a lie and I – don't recommend being a liar. <laughs> but uh, once you tell yourself a lie, if you tell yourself that lie enough, I feel like it becomes real for a lot of people. So that persona that they're trying to be this certain person on social media, I think really hurts the youth because, like I said, they're trying to meet a certain standard. So other people will think they're cool or that, that they're doing, that their life is amazing. And then when they log off of social media, they're like still trying to live that lie. Yes, I, I think that there is something to be said about the concept of generating followers or viewers or fans or whatever terminology you, you feel comfortable using. There's something to be said about that fitting or filling a narcissistic need. And sometimes at the end of the day, from a clinical perspective, a narcissist is really someone who has great holes in their self-esteem, has feelings of deep insecurity. And if I have to go outside of myself – to have those needs met, I'm actually not really working on the problem that caused those needs in the first place. Mm -hmm. A lot of people I feel like have those problems and resort to social media for for that instant satisfaction. Like, oh, I'm bad things are going on in my life. Uh, I lost my job today. So I broke up with my girlfriend or boyfriend and people go to social media for like likes. And something that I say, and like I said, I, I feel like I'm an old soul Something I say to a lot of my friends and a lot of different people is like, like I've said before, you got to take it with a grain of salt. Likes don't equal love. It's like I know my favorite example is like when a girl breaks up with her boyfriend. Girl breaks up with her boyfriend, goes immediate, immediately to social media to post an edgy picture to see if she could get 500 likes or 600 likes on this picture, thinking that those likes will e equal love. And at the end of the day, those likes don't really mean anything. So these people are looking for the satisfaction and something that's essentially not going to ever be able to truthfully give it to them. Well, again, it, it goes to this idea of creating narcissistic bait through social media and using that example of, of, a, of a female who would post an edgy photo. Then you have men responding to that who want to be seen in a particular light. So they're throwing their bait out there to respond to what they perceive as her bait. And at that moment, we really don't know what the true feelings are, what the true issues are. Because in those moments, as as we said earlier, people are kind of playing a role. They're not necessarily being honest in terms of who they truly are. Yeah, and that's what – that goes back to like what I was saying about that persona. So that probably – them trying to meet that fake persona that they've created probably makes your job a little more difficult because they're not coming to you with a specific problem. They just don't know what their problem is. I'll reframe it this way. They know what the problem is, but there is a level of vulnerability about discussing the problem. So people often try to portray the problem in something they see as being socially acceptable rather than being honest in terms of who they are. Nobody wants to come in and say that they're lonely. Nobody wants to come in and say that they don't have 
uh, a level of human companionship that makes them feel happy in themselves. No one comes out and says that. What they say is that, oh, I work too much or, you know, I, I had to leave school because of COVID and I can't be with my friends now. Yes, those are situations, but the feeling that's producing them coming to therapy is really a sense of loneliness, but it does take a while for people to get there. Yeah, I think it's hard for people to definitely come out and say that out loud. It's, I think that goes back to the social media thing. I think because of social media and technology, because of that instant, there's no, like you said, there's no pause in time between an interaction. I think that people in this generation are very judgmental because they try to live like these social media influencers who are doing things famously and whatnot. So I think that it's probably hard, especially for my generation, to come to you with these problems because they essentially think that you're going to judge them. And that's like the last thing that you're going to do in your line of work. That, that And I think that's probably a disconnect that people think. And like I said before, that negative stigma around going to see a therapist, like you're not going there to get judged. People think that, oh, if I tell him that this, this and this is wrong with me, like he's going to think I'm crazy. Yep. I, I use the analogy of, of people, especially obviously a large percentage of your population mm. are people who are very into physical fitness and taking advantage of gyms and, and workout environments and spas and all of that. Going to therapy is just another version of a workout, except it's an emotional workout. It's an emotional spa. Yeah. It's not a physical thing. It's not a facial. It's not an upper body workout, but it produces the same outcome, which is that you're working on yourself and you're putting effort into you. So that really can't be seen as a negative. Yeah. I like how you use the gym as an example. I'm going to get into something about that a little bit later, but people don't realize. And I think that as the years go on, more and more people just forget this, that even the people that are in the gym all the time and doing things actively, they don't realize that you have to work on your your body and your mind and your soul, I think. So people forget and neglect that working on their mind is so important. And when they neglect it, eventually I feel like it builds up and that's when they come to you because they're like, I don't know what to do because all this time they haven't been working on being mentally stable or mentally happy. Right. And that's what I said earlier. People come to therapy usually in crisis. Mm. And then the goal of the therapist is to meet them at that crisis point. But Real, real emotional growth often only occurs after the crisis is addressed because after the crisis is addressed, the person allows more of who they truly are to come forward and then you can actually perform an intervention that gets that growth, not just reacting to the crisis. How often do people take your advice the wrong way or perceive it differently than you than you intended? Because people need that advice and I feel like they hear it many times, even if they identify the problem it doesn't get fixed right away because I feel like they don't implement anything. So do you think that people listen to your advice and either perceive it wrongly sometimes or just don't implement it and then are confused why nothing's changing? I'll reframe your question this way. It's not necessarily advice I give people. I try to get my patients to understand that there may be other options available for them. And my advice then is not necessarily one or two separate subsets, but really is about getting people to understand that they have a skill set, they have a set of strengths and weaknesses that have prepared them to meet certain things in their life. And therefore, whatever my advice may be, it really is about getting them to look at other potential options. My role of the therapist is not to talk anybody into doing anything. My role of the therapist is get that person to understand that this is where your strengths lie. 
And these are some potential choices you could have. Doesn't mean you have to take them. It has to mean, though, that you understand it. You have the skill set to go forward and to make those choices. So when your patients finally listen to those those choices that you lay out for them and it works out positively, what is the reaction when they see you the next time? They're like, wow, it, it worked. Like you were right. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes I'll be honest and I'll say, yes, it, it worked this time, but there's no guarantee it's going to work the next time because of what usually requires in any type of clinical change is somebody has to be consistent. You, you just don't, it, it's like beginner's luck sometimes. You can go out there and you could, you could play golf the first time and you could actually, you know, par a hole. It doesn't mean you're ready for the PGA tour. The reality is, is that it's about being consistent. And if you know that you can do something different and get a response that works for you, that should encourage you to continue to feel comfortable doing it that way, pursuing different lines of thought, being open to being different, being open to, to having changes. That would be the key. I really like a lot how you said um, it worked this time, but it might not work next time. So it sounds like you take a very realistic approach to these situations with people. So if they come in and say, your advice worked and they're on that, that I guess, natural high that they're happy that your advice worked and it made their life better and, or po- more positive in a sense, I think that that could be dangerous because like you said, it doesn't mean that it'll always work. So I think it's pretty interesting that you take such a realistic approach to it and kind of bring them back down from that natural high and say, hey, listen, like this worked this time, but like, you need to work on yourself. I, I tell individual patients the first time I ever meet them, I, I have a bit of a, a presentation. And in the presentation, I tell people all the time that therapy is a consumer process and they are the consumer. If I am not able to help them or they are not able to make a clinical connection with me, they should not come back to therapy with me. Because at the end of the day, it's about their needs and about their growth, not mine. And my style is unique to me. And, I, and I've said this to my patients. In order for me to become uh, a licensed clinical social worker and, and eventually develop a private practice and, and work with people individually and in couples, I had to go through my own therapeutic process. And I went through different types of therapists who had very different types of styles, very different types of, of presentations. I am not the be-all and end-all for all patients, and I understand that. So if people are not comfortable with me, they should not come back. They should find another therapist, someone who's going to create that bond for them because it is their time, it is their effort, and more importantly, it's their growth. A common theme that we've had in the past couple episodes, a lot of my guests truthfully love what they do. And not only just love what they do, they, they do it for the correct reasons. So... I think it's interesting that I keep coming back to this common theme because you're basically saying that you're not always the right therapist for that individual and that individual needs someone that's specific to their needs or how how they act or operate as a human being. So I think it's pretty cool that you tell them from the get-go like, hey, listen, like if you don't want to come back again, don't. You're not trying to sell them on the fact that they need to keep coming back to you for like that paycheck. You're instead you're doing it with the best mindset for your patients. Essentially you're, you're really doing it to help them and not just get the money. And I, like I said, that's a common theme lately with the past couple of guests I've had that people do their jobs. A lot of people do it just for the money. 
I think it's important, especially in healthcare and especially dealing with people with mental illnesses and anxiety and depression, you need to do it for the right reasons. So I think it's awesome that you're able to tell that or bring that realistic approach, like I said earlier, to your patients when you first meet them and say, hey, listen, this might not be for you, but try another therapist because I might not be the end all, like you said. Absolutely. And that's key because remember – The goal of therapy is self-development, self-growth. It's about changing a perception. It's about getting out of crisis, getting to a place of comfort. It's about maybe getting away of a different definition. I tell people all the time, I don't like people using the term normal. Normal is really a a term that can never be defined because – Ted's normalcy is very different than Jesse's normalcy. So therefore, I don't want me to start projecting my definition of normalcy onto you because now you could feel as though you're abnormal. You don't fit. Your life is no good because you're trying to line up with my definition of how I see myself. That's incorrect. We don't do that. What we want is I want Jesse to understand that there could be strengths in Jesse that he should be using a little bit more assertively, a little bit more aggressively, or even taking those strengths and applying them in a completely different part of his life. And that's the key of therapy, getting the patient to understand that they are empowered. Interesting. So a lot of people probably have these underlying skills or strengths that they don't even realize and essentially you're helping them bring them out. Everyone has a unique life experience. Everyone that I know and probably everyone you know was not raised in a box. They were not raised in a controlled environment. We are products of our environment. And that's why for a lot of my patients, the difficulty often stems, you know, the, the, the running joke in therapy is when in doubt, blame the mother. That's the running joke in therapy. <laughs> it's not true. The reality though is, is that we were raised by uh, other adults. We were raised in family units. And sometimes in those family units, there were things that occurred that impacted us. It doesn't mean that we're flawed. It means that we were impacted by things beyond our control at a young age. What do I do now as an adult who's empowered, who's no longer that disempowered child? What do I do now because I was impacted? And that's where therapy comes in, understanding you have the strength today as an adult to overcome anything you may have been subjected to as a child. It takes time. It takes effort. But more importantly, it takes a focus on you, not the focusing on where the problem came from, my mother, my father, my sister, my uncle, whatever. It comes from the patient focusing on themselves. So we spoke a little bit about mental illness in the youth. You just mentioned adults and talking about how things happen when you're a child and eventually they cause not these flaws, but for you to feel this either depressed or anxiety or whatever you feel because of it. Is there, what do you think the most common issue you see with adults are as opposed to kids or do they align? I think there's a level of alignment. I think adults have anxiety and depressive issues, the same Mm -hmm. percentage probably as children. The difference is in adults is the way that behavior is seen is very different. In in children, you're spending a lot of time looking at nonverbal behavior, the acting out, the problems in school, the problems in their peer group, the problems in socialization. With adults, a lot of that stuff kind of gets hidden, especially when you have people who may be seen as quote-unquote functioning. They're married. They may have their own children. They may have a nine-to-five job. They have a house. They pay their mortgage. They've got a car loan. And everybody thinks that everything is fine. But in that person's mind, in that person's way they see themselves, they see themselves struggling. They see themselves less than. They see themselves as somewhat being behind their peers. And as an adult, 
that type of behavior is often glossed over. And that's why, again, one of the things that I've always stressed to my patients in therapy is that when you come in and you want to start talking about an issue that bothers you, there is no right or wrong. It's your issue. That's why you're here. You can't frame it as, oh, it's not that big of a deal. But no, don't minimize what you feel. Because if you start to do that, then you're never going to give yourself an opportunity to step around and look at it from a different point. I think it's interesting that you said they somewhat align within kids and adults and that you said anxiety because before our episode today, I did some research and I read that 40 million people in the United States suffer from anxiety. Um, that's like 18% of the U.S. population, which is pretty – it's a pretty significant amount of people to be – experiencing anxiety and and whatnot and what anxiety entails so like i know there's different forms of anxiety i guess like i wouldn't know the actual names for them but for people who get anxiety uh anxious in large crowds or people who get anxious I, i don't know there's different situations so do you think that there's a specific type of anxiety that we're seeing in the world today that is most common with people or does it really just depend based on the uh, individual? I'm, I'm sure there are probably studies somewhere that break out the direct diagnosis of in terms of anxiety versus someone who has anxiety who's agoraphobic where they don't leave their house. They have difficulty leaving their house versus someone who has anxiety that's more in line of that traditional obsessive compulsive disorder. They're worried about locking the front door five or six times or they have to flip the, the light switch three times. I will, I do know this much though that for the last 20 years, if you were to pull up the most prescribed medications in the United States, they usually fall into anti-hypertensive, anti-anxiety, and anti-depressive in terms of category. So yes, there are a large number of people in this country who do suffer from anxiety. The question about anxiety always boils down to this. Is the anxiety coming from a physiological thing, i.e., is this a body chemistry thing where simply putting you on an anti-anxiety, getting you to to somehow straighten out your, your blood chemistry and has a great impact on me, or is it environmental? Am I anxious because of things happening around me? That usually requires a bit of of give and take. And that's why for me as a therapist, I've said to people in my practice, listen, you've come a very long way with your anxiety, but you're still suffering significant symptoms. You may want to go and talk to somebody about getting medicated because I believe that at this point, your behavior would best suit you for an anti-anxiety trial and give it a shot and let's see where we can go with it. I think it's pretty crazy how – we're like the common theme right now is anxiety. You're saying that a lot of kids that you see or a lot of the younger generation as well as the older generation are experiencing these things. When I did my research, I think that it was like 36% of that 40 million that I spoke about. So 40 million people in the United States are suffering from anxiety and only 36% of them are receiving treatment for it. And I thought that was pretty crazy because I think there's probably two reasons. One, they're either don't know that 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 it's anxiety. Like I, I feel like people say, "Oh, that gives me anxiety," and don't really realize the the how heavy that word is. Like what what comes with that word. So I think that a lot of people don't even realize that like this overwhelming fear of anxiousness is just it's clinically could be taught to you as anxiety. Do you think that, like I said before, because of that negative stigma, that might be the second reason that people don't want to come see a therapist or seek help. They think essentially I 
I don't want to see a therapist because I, I'm not crazy or I, I'm not insane or I'm not going to hurt myself or, or whatnot. And I think there's like a negative stigma aside from people, A, like I said, either they don't know that they have anxiety and that's why they're not being treated or B, they have it and they're like, oh, I don't need that therapy because I'm not crazy, like I said. So what would you say to someone who's on the brink of getting help if they have anxiety or, or feel depressed? Like, what would you say to push them over that edge of, hey, listen, like it's therapy. You're just – it's literally a one-to-one conversation is what it is. It goes back to the analogy earlier when I used the gym analogy. You're willing to put time and effort into helping yourself in terms of your physical performance. You're willing to put the time and effort into maybe do better in your job. You you work overtime. You stay late. You work on special projects. You volunteer. You do all these things to get recognized to move up the, the ladder, so to speak. Why would you be reluctant to improve yourself by putting the same level of effort and attention on you? as you do on your, your physical body, as you do on your, your professional uh, growth and development. That's where I would challenge people. And, and again, I the other part of this equation, which is something that I had, unfortunately, a 20-year run working with drug and alcohol victims, is that people self-medicate, and therefore anxiety is easily self-medicated. Alcohol is a wonderful, wonderful central nervous system depressant. I'm anxious all day. Well, as soon as I get home and then I know there's a bottle of wine waiting for me or there's a cocktail waiting for me, I can now breathe and my life is so much better. And people begin to live their life like that. And before you know it, you see it as a rational trade-off. I hate my job. I hate my life. But as soon as I get home and I have my substance, whatever it may be, all of a sudden I don't feel so bad anymore, which what? Then minimizes my need to go to therapy. And that probably makes it even worse in a sense because then they become dependent on those things. Yes. So if you have a bad day and you don't have your, uh, I don't know, shot of bourbon or if you don't have whatever whatever your poison of choice is. Mm-hmm. I say poison because they're drugs, people. So I feel like people become dependent on those things and that probably makes the situation even worse when they don't have them. Well, remember, dependency basically at that point means – I no longer have free open choice in my style of living. I'm dependent on something. I have to have it. And that's why uh, in the old days, the, the, when you looked at, at addicts or alcoholics, you, you broke them into two categories. You had abusers and then you had people who were dependent. And they used to draw a very fine line between who was an abuser and who was dependent. Now, they no longer look at people with addiction problems that way. Dependency is a real issue, even if people say, oh, no, it's no big deal. I got it under control. Well, what you have under control is you've decided I'd rather drink, I'd rather ingest a substance, rather than look at why I'm anxious in the first place, why I'm depressed in the first place. And as a result, what do you do? You're covering a problem. You're not necessarily addressing the problem. And I think that that kind of just aids the fact that, oh, if I have this drink, I don't need to talk about it anymore. And I feel like a lot of people come to you on the verge of crisis, like you said, because they don't understand that, like I said, therapy is just talking it out and talking about your problems is such a beneficial thing that people don't realize just being able to say something out loud is it's self healing realistically yeah, just I, to, I agree but it's also from the perspective of somebody who's been living in their head it's very scary yeah i think that's why it's they're so reluctant to go get that therapy because they've never had that experience of 
speaking out loud. Yes. And I think that stems from probably just friend groups, especially in my generation. Like I said, everyone's very judgmental. It's hard to connect with your friends and tell them relying issues, mm-hmm. like issues that are really at hand that they don't know about. Absolutely. That requires a level of personal vulnerability. And a lot of people are not going to go there. They're not, regardless of how well you know somebody, how well you feel connected with a friend group, that level of vulnerability requires people to take a step beyond that. And that's not an easy thing to do for a lot of folks. So when you have these patients that are on the verge of crisis and don't have that ability to speak to their friends or speak to their family, do you see that more often than not after seeing you a couple of times or a dozen times that that gets better just because they're able to now speak to someone and just let out their problems? Do you think that that helps a lot in most cases? I'll say this. I'll say that there's probably a reduction in the feeling of crisis and the pressure that crisis brings, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the issue has been addressed. It means as though I'm treating the symptom, not the problem. And Mm -hmm. that's why from a therapeutic perspective, we want to treat the symptom. We want to work through the crisis with the individual, but we hope that after that symptom has alleviated a bit, we will get the individual the opportunity to work on the issue and really be open and honest and say, hey, this is what's caused this anxiety in me. This is what's caused this depression in me. Let me see if I can come up with a different set of solutions. Okay. So steering away from that a little bit, um, we said something earlier that kind of struck a nerve. I've The past couple of episodes, it's been hard to get away from this just because it's the life we live now, but coronavirus or COVID-19, that affected everything. I've, I've spoke to three different people on the show so far, and I've heard their versions of how it affected them, how it affected their lives, their jobs, whatnot. So in your line of work, did you see like a surge in, in patients or, or anxiety levels, depression levels because of COVID-19? And the reason I ask that is because, like you said, a way to work on yourself is the gym. I personally – when COVID hit, I was I had to work out in my backyard. I couldn't not do physical activity because that's that helps me a lot mentally and physically. Different things like that and just like having no socialization during quarantine and you don't have social events anymore. You can't go to bars. You can't go to out to eat with your friends. You can't go to, I don't know, Dave and Buster's and play games with your friends. Like, do you think that because of COVID-19 and those different things that it occur- that occurred during the quarantine and whatnot – Do you think those rose the levels of um, anxiety and depression in people? Absolutely. I'll I'll give you a couple of anecdotal points. One, the number of people seeking therapy actually first decreased. People were afraid to leave. People were afraid to come out. In the middle of March, a large percentage of my patients are people who carry health insurance. I do take health insurance. And health insurance, uh, the players started in the middle of March, allowing people to participate in video conferencing telehealth sessions, which previously they had been very, very reluctant to allow to happen. So I started to have a number of my patients return and started doing telehealth with me via Zoom, via Skype, via FaceTime. The numbers started to slowly come back. The first thing I noticed was is that there was an entire population of people, young people, young people living on Long Island who started to go from working $300 a week jobs to getting close to $1,000 a week in unemployment between the COVID incentive from the federal government and New York State. And as a result, I started to see a lot of people who started to develop pretty significant drug and alcohol issues because they had disposable income. And I started to work with a number of people who prior to the influx of all this additional money 
did not have significant drug and alcohol issues. Things started to taper off in July when the COVID incentive unemployment money went away. And then I'm going to say probably starting in August when people, a lot of my younger patients, people in your generation, as you said, the socialization had been impacted significantly and people started to understand what it was like not to have those social connections. And since that point, I'm going to say that my practice has been pretty much full. I I no longer have the ability to accept new patients at this time. I'm working with a full load of people and I'm averaging anywhere between 60 and 65 individual clinical contacts in a week. That's insane. And it's crazy to me, even though that I thought that would be the case, that hearing it from you and you being in your line of work, it still kind of like baffles me a little bit that this quarantine or this um, pandemic really did that to people because I think there's a couple different reasons. Like we said before, first off, humans are social creatures. We need we need interaction. Correct. Second off, without that interaction, I think people geared even more towards being on social media again. And I think that affected them. And the reason I, kept br- I keep bringing up social media today and technology is because I think that as technology grows – those social interactions just keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And we're going to a, we're going to come into this next generation of people who just aren't very good at socializing because they're so used to communicating through technology. Do you think that with the growth of technology and these social media platforms getting bigger and having a larger presence in people's lives, do you think that it's going to be even harder for them to come speak to uh, speak to people in general and also come seek out a therapist for help to speak about their problems. I'll answer the question with the second half first, which is I do believe that people of your generation, younger people, are much more open to seeking therapy than people who were in my generation. I'm a product of a generation where my my father never really quite understood what I did in his mind. The only people who went to talk to somebody were either people who had a lot of money and had nothing better to do with their money or people who were really, really screwed up like half a step away from being committed to a state psychiatric institution. He never understood what therapy was because that was a product of his generation. My generation was impacted by those thoughts. However, I think that your generation is different. I do believe that in large part because of the ease in which social media makes it people easy to connect with people, not necessarily be vulnerable with people, but connect with people, people will now see therapy as just another thing to do. And that's fine with me because whatever it takes to get somebody into the office to talk about an issue, whether it's because they want to feel as though their peers do it or they want to feel as though that this is part and parcel of being a young person in this generation, it doesn't matter. The first half of the question, though, is that will they access themselves? Will they allow themselves to be large, largely influenced by their peer groups through social media? Unfortunately, I think you're probably right. And I do think that there is probably going to be a lot of what I refer to as that hidden persuasion where people are urged to do things or not do things because of a level of a social acceptability, not necessarily something that they believe in themselves. So with the growth of technology, I'm glad we kind of agree on that. So in my generation as well as yours, you're kind of seeing that we're becoming more dependent on it and that might decrease the level of people coming to talk to a therapist or seeking out that help. But you did say that you're now allowed to give therapy sessions to patients via Skype or FaceTime and whatnot. 
Do you think that meeting someone in person and having those conversations helps better than meeting them on that webcam or that, that video chat? Or does is it really not matter as long as you're face-to-face speaking? From the perspective of myself as a therapist, I prefer in-person, face-to-face contact. I, I come from a, a, a time where we spent a significant amount of time talking about how people use body language to communicate. I came from a place in time where it was important to talk about allowing the patient to be comfortable in a clinical setting. Some people may say, well, the person's going to be more comfortable in their home than they would be in a clinical setting. Yes, the problem though is that if they're in their own home, how open are they going to be allowing things to come out because this is my home. This is my safe space. Am I willing to talk about things that I'm uncomfortable talking about in my safe space? I may be able to do it in a stranger's office because I know that after 45 minutes or an hour, I'm going to walk out of that office and I'm going to feel as though that I don't have to necessarily take that content with me. Yeah. I think that honestly, in your line of work, as well as many others, that those social interactions being in person with someone just means more. Um, not only does it mean more and you get more out of it, I think, but like you said, body language and the way that you're presenting the information in person. Like I speak with my hands a lot. A lot of people, it's the 25% Italian in me. That's that's how I got it. I don't got the Italian looks per se, but I do have the hand motion. I, I, I speak with my hands a lot. So I think that in your line of work as well as others and just life in general – Things get lost in text and writing. People don't understand the true meaning of what they say or they might take it the incorrect way and say, oh, well, you said this. And it's like, oh, well, I was being sarcastic. But you can't sense or or listen to someone's sarcasm via text. And I think that that just plays back to the technology level growing every year and people being dependent on that. I think that communication amongst human beings is going to be altered in the future because we won't understand completely what that person means if we're not with them face to face. The biggest problem I have when I work with people in therapy is making sure people understand the difference between presentation and content. People sometimes do not hear or do not experience the content because of the way it's presented. And I often spend time in therapy with a lot of my patients, getting them to understand that their presentation obscures their content. And that's why people react a certain way to them or why they are unsuccessful achieving an objective that they wish. So yes, and in social media, what happens is, is that the presentation becomes this almost lifeless, flat, one-dimensional plane and I can read into that any way I want. I could read in sarcasm. I could read in attack. I could read in boredom. I can read in anything. And that's, once again, there's a mistake because you don't have the ability to see how I presented it. Yeah. Like I said, I think that's a really big problem in all types of communication, not just your line of work, but just interacting with humans on a daily basis. But I want to play devil's advocate a little bit here, which is something I like to do a lot. Honestly, I'm good at it. Do you think that some people who are quick to jump the gun, if, if I have an anger issue and I'm quick to say something rude to someone, that do you think that maybe putting it in writing sometimes might be more beneficial to someone like that? Yeah, especially because if, if you're the one putting it in writing, you actually have an opportunity to read your own words. And reading your own words – takes away that impulsiveness when something comes out of our mouth. Mm -hmm. 
And that is when you talk about anger or you talk about any aspect of anger management, one of the first things that a good clinician will tell you about anger management is what role your impulsivity plays in your anger. You're angry, you can be angry, but why don't you write those words down first rather than just spewing them out like lava at somebody? Because the answer comes to when I write them down, that requires me to stop and think and process, and that chops into the impulsivity. So it really depends on the person then, so to say, if you should be putting things in writing or having a heartfelt conversation with someone about your issues with them. I think in terms of the individual, if you believe that there's always a high potential for your content not to be heard, then yes, you should try to change your presentation. And if that means putting it in writing, so be it. You want your content heard. At the end of the day, I want somebody to know that they hurt me. I want somebody to know that they upset me. But if my presentation is one of anger, they're going to feel that I'm attacking them and they no longer see or begin to think about how they hurt me or they upset me. They see themselves being attacked. Do you see often that when your patients talk to you and talk about your their problems, you're, you're saying – we were just saying how – you should write it down about how this person hurt me or what they did to you. Do you think a lot of the times that people are reluctant to look at their own side of the story and say like, hey, like they did this to me, they did that to me. But is it more often that people are able to be like, hey, I did this wrong, but they did this wrong? Or is it always 100% on the other person? Like they're playing the victim. Uh, there, there's something to be said about insight and insight requires us to take ownership of things that we, we did, we said how the situation got turned around because of our acts or lack of action. If you are comfortable looking at yourself in that type of a manner, then you have a huge step ahead because that means at least you can get into a place for compromise. You can get to a place for open, honest discussion. It's not about demonizing your opponent. It's not about creating a conflict, but it's about, hey, how can I make this better for me and maybe simultaneously make it better for you? Yeah, so – People who don't see that, they're not always right. People who, I guess, don't see their own flaws and what they're doing wrong, it's a lot harder for them to personally grow and get past something. Because I think that if you are able to, like you said, it's it's rare, but it's you're a step ahead of the game if you are able to say, hey, I do this wrong and I want to fix it. I truthfully believe that you won't have personal growth in anything in any aspect of your life if you don't if you're not able to recognize that and i guess that's a little biased i I guess obviously people achieve success and do things that they want without having that but i think that personal growth like truthfully inside like mentally and just you as a person you need to identify your problems and issues before you're able to find the solution to them that goes back to what i said earlier jesse about the concept of vulnerability Mm. It takes a level of strength to tell someone, especially someone who you feel you're in conflict with, to say, you know what? Yeah, you are right. I shouldn't have said it that way. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have approached you in that manner. That That's a level of vulnerability. But again, vulnerability is not weakness. Vulnerability is strength because it basically means is that I'm so comfortable with my honesty that I'm going to tell you the things that I even see as shortcomings or flaws in my character development. But it does mean that when I do tell you things that I know that I'm right in, I'm going to give it to you also. I'm going to give it to you straight. And vulnerability is something that is a huge struggle for lots and lots of people. I was on a podcast recently, one of my friend's podcasts, and we were saying about 
how you need to get comfortable with the uncomfortable. So those things that make you uncomfortable speaking out and, and portraying that level of vulnerability, I think once you get comfortable with doing that, like I said, then the personal growth comes. So basically we're coming to an end of this episode and I'd like to go off that point that I just said that coming becoming comfortable with the uncomfortable to identify a problem that you're experiencing, whether it's anxiety or depression or whatnot, I think the best way to look at it, and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not a professional in this area, but like I said, is to try to identify your problem first and know how important it is just to be able to speak to someone. So whether it's you're going to TED to see an actual licensed worker and someone a professional at this or just being able to open up to someone in your family is so important. So identify your problem and get comfortable with expressing that level of vulnerability. And if you do those two things, then it'll be a lot easier to open up to people. And then once you speak about your problems, it's it gets better. Like I said, bottling, I said earlier, bottling those feelings up just makes you explode. And then people come to you on the verge of crisis. Don't wait that long. If you're feeling this anxiety or depression or some type of mental illness and you and you definitely could recognize a problem, speak to someone about it. Whether, like I said, whether it's a professional or some just speaking about it to anyone that you know will help. Do you agree with that, correct? Absolutely. Everything starts with personal awareness. Being aware of yourself allows you then to be in a position to be better aware of others. But you have to first be aware of yourself. That's I like the way you put that, honestly. Being aware of yourself. So a little while ago, we said that people are quick to say, oh, they did this to me. But tying back into what I'm saying, if you're being able, if you're able to be aware of yourself, then your problems have an easier solution than if you deny that. Correct. Correct. Okay. So I think that about wraps up our episode with Ted today. Uh, We talked about a lot of good things. I want people who are listening to this that, like I said, if you are feeling that type of anxiety or depression, especially especially during these times, like we said, COVID amped up those numbers a lot. Don't follow that negative stigma of, oh, I can't go see a therapist or I can't talk about my feelings because someone will think I'm weird or different. I'm going to tell you something, guys. We're all weird. We're all different. (laughs) No one's there's you said that level of normalcy. And I don't think that there's no set parameters for being normal. So take what people think about you with a grain of salt and be able to open up and talk about your problems. And I think that it will help a lot. And from what conversations me and Ted have had today and previously, I know that he agrees. And Ted, I'm very happy that we were able to do this today. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Uh, I'd probably like to have you on again one time in the future and talk a little bit more about mental health. But for today, this is Jesse signing off. Like I said, thank you again, Ted, and thank you guys for listening. Thank you for listening to The Schnap. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And also, please don't forget to follow us on Instagram and YouTube at The Schnap. That's the S-H-N-A-P. This is your host, Jesse Condon, signing off.